Welcome to Brandon Event. Uh, today we are joined by Tyrone Goldschmidt, a renowned philosopher and uh, multi-publisher. We're going to have a link to some of his uh, greatest hits uh, in our description. Um, Tyrone, would you like to start with a thought experiment? The idea is that um, there could be this super duper um, neuroscientist, okay, Mary, um, who um, knows everything there is to know about the physics, chemistry, biology, about, about the brain in particular, okay, and especially about how um, color vision works and, you know, how this experiences of color are processed in the brain. So um, she, when, when you look at something, a bright red apple, and have this sensation of redness, she knows everything about the physics, about the material stuff that there is to know. She knows how light bounces off the surface of the atom, which bits of the eye it bumps onto, how, what signals those send to what parts of the brain, and so on. Okay. In far more detail than any, any um, contemporary physicist or brain scientist knows. She knows everything there is to know about the goings on in the brain when somebody experiences, sees, feels this bright redness. Uh, the cr a crucial part is that Mary is living in a colorblind world. She has been um, locked up in some sort of black and white laboratory and learned all this off black and white screens or textbooks, um, or maybe she's colorblind. But at the end of the day, at some point, she's released from the room, her colorblindness is cured, and she sees for the first time a bright red apple. And here's the big question. Um, does Mary learn anything new when she has this experience of the apple? Uh, of the of the redness when she has this sensation for the first time, and the the moral is that well supposed to be you're supposed to answer that she does, she learns something new when she sees this redness for the first time, but she knew all the physical facts, she knew everything there was to know about uh, what's going on in the eye and the brain when somebody sees red. Um, she knows all the physical facts. She learned something new. She knows all the physical facts. She doesn't know all the facts. So it follows that there must be some facts over and above the physical facts. Facts about sensations, feelings, um, facts about the kinds of, of conscious states you're in when you see something red are over and above the physical facts. Um, there are features, properties of these experiences of sensations that are not captured by physics. So the moral of the story is that there are two kinds of features in the world, at least two kinds of features in the world. The world is, consists in material stuff and their features. Okay. But over and above the, the physical features, there are also psychological features, phenomenal features, these features of consciousness that aren't physically reducible. I mean, Mary originally, the only conception of color she has is color as a wavelength, color as it's written about in textbooks, 
um, color as she develops scientific theories about it. And then she walks out into the world and she experiences color for the first time. She sees a red apple and the experience of that redness is so different from what she has learned that we think that color must be something over and above our scientific theories or the objective materialistic world. Um, there must be something subjective about it, right? The, the, the sensation, the, the psychological states that it, you, you're in, you know, when you have this uh, a bright red field in front of you, it feels right. to you a certain way, different from the way it feels when you have something green, bright green in front okay. of you. And, and that, that felt quality is not something that physics captures. It's not a physical feature of the world. It must be a non-physical feature of the world. And similarly, you could run the same sort of idea thought experiment for all kinds of any kind of felt quality pain you know um isn't a physical a physical thing though it might have physical causes and there might be physical aspects to the the feeling that the crucial felt quality of pain is irreducibly mental irreducibly psychological it's not physical could you speak for a bit about what you mean by irreducible? Because it's a philosophical term that philosophers love to use. Um, what, what do you mean by irreducible? Maybe biological properties boil down to chemical properties and they, they in turn boil down to physical properties. Or look at it this way. If God sets all the physical facts, if he puts all the atoms in place, okay, he thereby sets all the chemical facts. He thereby sets all the biological facts and so on. And what this argument's supposed to show is that no, when God creates all the physical facts, when he puts all the atoms in place, when he creates your brain in just the shape it is, okay, with all the little electrochemical goings on that there are in, in, in your brain, when he sets those in motion, he has to do more work. He has to do more work to bring the psychological onto the scene, to bring that felt quality of redness onto the scene. So when, when God um, creates a physical world, um, he isn't done, at least if he wants a world like ours, until he sprinkles some um, psychological features onto it. The view that, the, that Mary's thought experiment is objecting to is the view that the physical facts set every fact. If you know all the physical facts, then you will know every fact there is, and Mary's room is supposed to be an objection to that position. You, the physical facts could be as they are. You could know all of them and not know everything there is to know. So there must be something over and above the physical facts. And what's crucial here is um, some sort of psychological facts that aren't physical. Of course, there, there, are, there might be other sorts of facts that aren't, that aren't physical, right? maybe mathematical facts or moral facts and so on and so forth. But this, this argument is just supposed to show that psychology or some aspect of psychology, the, the felt qualities of your experience are not physical features of the world. They're nothing like masses or velocities or speeds or charges. There's, there's a view that people are like biomachines, that they are like computers made out of, uh, made out of flesh um, and that our brains are like the kind of uh, circuitry that you would find in a computer. Um, and this is to say, well, we can't just be biomachines. There must be something more. Uh, we must have minds. And a mind implies this ability to have a certain way it is to be a human being, uh, to perceive things in a certain manner. 
Uh, and maybe, as you say, if you took a religious take on it, that this is akin to what it is to have a soul, um, that we cannot be explained purely in the material sense, that we must have this other aspect to ourselves. This Mary argument um, isn't supposed to show that we have souls or anything as, it's not supposed to show something as robust as that. It's just tr trying to show that certain psychological features, you know, certain psychological states, there are different ways you could put this, aren't physical. Okay. Well, whether those are also states of, whether, you know, the, you, might, you might think that there are physical features of the world, non-physical features of the world, mental features of the world, but they're all had by physical things, right? So maybe you or your brain has various familiar physical features, you know, a certain mass and shape and size. And it also has these luminous, spooky, um, psychological features. You might think that. And you might think there's no need to introduce souls into the picture. There's no, there's no purely immaterial stuff or subject or individual on the scene. There are all material objects, but some have physical features as well as non-physical features. Um, so, so Jackson's argument doesn't, doesn't yet at any rate, show that um, there are immaterial souls, that you are a, a non-incorporeal, spir purely spiritual um, being. It doesn't show that if it works. If it works, all it shows is that you have some, some non-physical properties. You might be otherwise, you might, you might be a physical being insofar as you have other physical properties. So there's a puzzle in the sense of saying, if we do have these two properties, some of which are physical and some of which are uh, non-physical, how do the two interact with each other? We do think that the psychological states properties that we have interact with the physical states and properties that we have, right? When, when I um, put my hand on a hot plate, right, that sends certain signals through my nerves eventually reach my my brain and um i feel pain so the the, the physical goings on in the world would be producing a non-physical state or you know um um giving rise to some sort of non-physical experience or experience that isn't physical through and through and you might wonder how how is it that physical stuff could bring about non-physical stuff, to speak loosely. How is it that physical states could bring about non-physical states? Some people think that we should give up this dualist picture of the world because, just because of this puzzle of, of interaction. We, we know that the psychological and the physical interact. If the physical and the psychological are radically different, there's no ways they could interact. So they can't be radically different. The physical and psychological must be the same kind of thing. Maybe your pain does boil down, reduce to something in your, maybe it is just, you know, neurons firing in your brain. I don't, I, I don't feel the problem. I mean, I don't, I don't feel the problem um, or the puzzle that they, they have. Yeah. I don't see why um, the fact that we don't understand something, if we don't, if we don't understand it, is reason for giving up on on a view you talk about properties and you talk about substances right so for for non-philosophers we often talk about 
substances as kind of the core thing underlying those properties. So your properties are possessed by a substance. And Mary's room is supposed to show that there is a dualism of properties, that there's physical properties and psychological properties. The physical properties would be the physical properties of redness. And the psychological properties would have something to do with the experience of redness. And the point is you can't reduce the one to the other. You know, there are things and there are features of things. There are substances, there are properties of those substances. There are particulars, there are ways those particulars are. These are all, I think, different ways of talking about the same thing. You know, reality consists of things, the ball, the apple, okay, the computer, the person. And also the features those things have. The ball, it has roundness, it is round. The apple has redness, it is red. The person has, well, it has a certain height and a certain mass and a certain velocity, uh, familiar physical properties. And, and the idea is that it also has, okay, if it is, if the person is physical, it also has some, some properties that are not physical. Okay. The properties of its experiences or some of its psychological states are non-physical properties. Right. And, and now Mark raises this problem of what is the connection or what is the relationship between these physical properties and these psychological properties? And if they're so different, how can they relate? And I wonder whether that problem of the connection or the interrelationship between the physical and the mental, or the psychological, maybe that's more of a problem for a substance dualist than for a property dualist. So the substance dualist thinks that there's not just two different types of properties or features of the same person or the same substance, but that there's two different substances, right? That there's a soul and there's a body. And now you have this much wider gap because there's two different substances. Whereas if you've got two different types of properties possessed by the same substance, then it seems the, the, the underlying common substance has kind of narrowed the gap between the two. They're just properties. Things with, diff with radically different features interact. Or if you like to put it this way, and I'm, this is a little cartoonish, we could say that um, radically different states interact with each other, you know, or even um, radically different properties are involved in causal interactions, you know. Electrons interact with protons, they're quite different. Um, round things and square things can interact, they're quite different. I, things, different kinds of things with different kinds of properties interact. So what, what's the big problem when it comes to mental properties and mental things interacting with physical properties and physical things? Some people phrase it as a problem of mechanism. So, so what is the mechanism? What is the what are the cogs that allow for the physical and the psychological, the mental, um, or the spiritual to interact? Now, I can imagine that's not the same problem as the square and circle case, right? So square objects and circular objects can interact because we have certain causal laws um, that we think govern both. And so they can both participate in those causal laws. They can both instantiate instances of those causal laws. Like I can have a round ball hitting a square wall. Um, and that's fine because there's causal laws that explain how things can hit each other. 
Um, and it doesn't specify whether, round, whether they be round or square. But our causal laws don't specify how like a soul and a body would interact. Why not? Why couldn't there be such laws? Well, I'm not saying there can't be, but it just seems at least like there's a puzzle to be solved there. You know, one, one could just say there are laws or primitive connections. Or maybe God does the work. Maybe God ties up bodies and souls and, men, you know, different mental properties and physical properties, different proposals. There's, there's a very deep and hard philosophical question about what causation is and whether it even exists, whether there is such a thing. And I, I don't think that there is anything like consensus about how to think about causation. Um, given how confused we are about how causation works generally, it seems, I don't know what the word is, premature, hubristic in a sort of way to come to a confident conclusion that mind-body um, or that, 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 that causation between mental states and physical states, mental properties and physical properties, if you want to put it that way, is impossible. So when we're trying to solve a problem like this, um, it seems like we want to do it with, with recourse to our current explanatory tools. And we might think that maybe they're not sufficient and that's why we need to look out of it. And I wonder about if you want to posit something like a soul, um, which I can't touch or taste. Um, we, we haven't got a sort of direct experience of what it would like to interact with the soul or, you know, um, and to say, well, don't worry, I've got this other solution, which is that there's a supernatural deity um, and that deity solves the problem. I might say, okay, but you've made another, another big move um, into another realm where I, I can't touch or taste this deity. Um, yeah. And so it might very well solve your problem, but now you've got a much bigger problem and you've got to explain. Oh, I, was just, I was just, you know, throwing it out there among many other ideas. You know, how, how do two things that are quite different interact? How, do, how does anything interact with anything that's different from it is a deep philosophical puzzle. And you might just think there are basic laws. Or you might think that they, that they just interact and that's all there is to it. Or you might think that God does it. Or, or, or. You know? um, I, wasn't, I wasn't trying to advocate or promote a particular solution to this. Well, but, but I don't think your problem with God doing the work is, a, is, a partic- is, is um, um, something I, I would worry about too much if I wanted to pursue that solution. I think you were suggesting that we sort of... Um, you know, um, what's the metaphor when you're pushing a bump in a carpet and moving it along? You're, you know, you, the same problem arises. How do, does body and soul interact? Well, God does it. Well, how does God do stuff? You know, does, how does, if, if it's puzzling to see how an immaterial soul gets or any immaterial state gets something physical moving or vice versa, how can you do, how, how can God, who's an immaterial thing, do the same work, right? To do the job. But of course, God has special features. God can do anything. Uh, and just like that, just so. You know, God, God being, I'm not being all powerful, just means that you can do anything just so. Um, so God doesn't need a mechanism to you know, tie up causal connections, do anything else God would like to do. Why do we need laws of physics at all? <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah. I mean, what's, yeah. what are these scientists doing? Well, maybe, maybe, maybe it's just the way it is. The deity did it. Come on, guys. Can't we get on back to our theological, you know, theological questions? You know, why are you investigating these supposed laws of the universe? It's God. It's fine. Yeah, I'm, I'm open to the idea that all um, causal connections really are God just 
come down, boil down to God's just, you know, um, ensuring regularities. Um, you know, things have the causal powers they do if they have causal powers at all because of God or that the laws of nature are divine decrees, if we can speak uh, metaphorically. Um, I'm open to that. I'm open to that across the board. So I'm certainly open to that in the case of, of um, setting up mind-body interactions. But I, I don't mean to suggest that um, your listener or you have to be have a certain theological picture in order to accept mind-body interaction, right? Or to accept interaction between physical states and non-physical states and vice versa you could be a perfect atheist um and just think that there are laws connecting these things just as there are physical laws connecting different kinds of physical features and, uh, um there are there are laws bridging between physical and non-physical is a non-physical property very different from say negative charge is it more different from negative charge than positive charge is different from negative charge or then squareness is different from negative charge or then a spin is, is different from negative charge. I mean, these all seem to be very different kinds of features of the world. If you think that a bunch of them can be tied up together and you're not, you don't find that problematic for whatever reason, maybe you just think it's so or there are laws or God does or whatever, then just uh, accept the same picture for, for interaction between physical and, and uh, the physical and the non-physical, the physical and the mental. I've heard the merry argument before, and I find it compelling. Really? I, I, okay. Yeah, yeah. And I like the idea of property dualism, but I very strongly resist substance dualism. Um, in other words, I'm okay with dualism in a person's features, some of those features being psychological and others being physical, but I strongly resist the idea of a person um, being composed of two substances or identified with one substance and then have a separate substance. So they're their soul and then they have a body on the side. Um, and, and I think what's troubling about the Mary's room thought experiment is the very same form of argument might be used in other types of cases to try and push towards maybe a substance dualism view. Not, not only are there these phys non-physical properties, psychological properties, okay, um, that you have, but strictly speaking, they're the only features you have. There's this body that has mass and, and, and uh, weight and velocity and uh, shape and a size. Uh, you're not that body at all. And you're not a part of that body. You're not a brain or part of the brain. You might be a soul, a purely non-physical thing with purely psychological features through and through. That happens to be connected to a body. So when, you know, the soul lights up in the right way, the body moves. When the body moves in some way, the soul lights up in the other. I mean, strictly speaking, you are just the soul. Um, um, that's, that is uh, what's known as substance dualism. Um, and it, you might think it's a stronger view than property dualism um, and harder to defend. But it seems that some of the same reasons that motivate property dualism uh, might motivate substance dualism, which you're hinting at. So if, if I were to take your brain out of your skull and put it into Mark's skull and take Mark's brain out of his skull and put it into to, um, your skull, um, you might think that you, you go with your brain and Mark goes with his brain. 
Okay. Um, people that would some people disagree about this, right? Um, and um, unlike the Mary thought experiments, this is actually a little more realistic because because um, brain transplants look like they might be around the corner, scientifically speaking. Right? People are thinking about this and working on this, and um, uh, we, we'll, we'll probably be able to transplant brains sooner than we will know everything there is to know about the physical goings-on uh, when you um, experience redness. Okay, so this, the idea of brain transplants might be easier than the idea of the Mary's room. Um, so you seem to go where your brain goes. Yeah, hold that thought. Um, you're, you might think your identity is tied up with your brain, but you are your brain, maybe, not your body um, that houses your brain. Um, here's a second thought. Seems like you could survive with half a brain. And also, this, this, is, this is also not so scientifically far-fetched. There are people who survive with pretty much half a brain. Um, uh, certain kinds of epilepsy are, um, I think it says, severe kinds of epilepsy are, are cured only by removing half of someone's brain, in their left hemisphere or their right hemisphere. And the subject can survive with one hemisphere, so it seems. If, it's, if these operations are done early enough on, the subject can have a very normal and fruitful and intelligent life. Uh, the brain is a kind of plastic thing like that. Um, so you seem to go where your brain goes, thought one. You can survive with half a brain, thought two. Now put these together with a case of fission. Let's say I take Jason and I extract his brain, split it down the middle. And I take the left hemisphere and put it into some sort of clone um, on the left-hand side and uh, his right hemisphere and put it in another clone of his body on the right-hand side. And these operations take. Now, this might be a little further off, um, scientifically speaking. Um, but, but it seems possible to do this. These, this is possible. This, this could, in a broad sense of could, happen. And now the question is, where does Jason go? Okay, because um, you, you, there'll be a fact of the matter, it seems, about what's happened to Jason. When this happens, or if it did happen, even if this operation never takes place, there would be a fact of the matter about where Jason goes, if it were to have taken place. And, um, and you, you, it seems to put this in Maryish terms, that you could know everything there is to know about every atom in Jason's brain and how the subsequent brains are lighting up. And it's still an open question, which one is Jason? They, both of those subsequent individuals, lefty and righty, if you will, might be equally physically continuous with Jason, have the same amount of Jason's brain they might be psychologically equally continuous with Jason, just have the same amount of Jason's personality. Um, they're real competitors. Um, if you say that Jason's gone left, well, there's a problem. You know, it seems like an arbitrary choice. If you say Jason's gone right, that's a problem. It seems like an arbitrary choice. If you say that Jason is, 
is in both places at one. That seems also a problem because it seems hard to imagine how one person could leave two separate lives, could be two centers of consciousness, could be multi-located like that. You might say Jason ceases to exist, but that's also a problem. You know, how could this, how could a double success here be, be a failure is the big question that people in the literature answer. If, if he survives with just half a brain, well, he survives. Okay, the person with half a brain is, is Jason. Well, why not then when two halves survive, could Jason not survive? There are puzzles for the different options here, but if we want to put it in Maryish terms, just think of it like this. You could know everything there is to know about the physical facts, the physical stuff, the brains and their parts, and not know where Jason has gone. The, the truth of Jason's identity, where Jason goes, um, isn't fixed by where the brain goes, where the parts of the brain goes. So um, there must be a further fact of the matter. That, the, that you don't know by knowing all the physical facts, a crucial fact about Jason's identity, right? Um, Jason, then, we might conclude, is not a physical thing. Jason is not a brain. Jason is not a part of a brain. Jason is an immaterial self. It might go left. It might go right. It might disappear. These are all possible. These are all possible. The physical facts don't tell us what's happened. We could know the physical facts without knowing where Jason is, Jason then must be something over and above the physical stuff. Well, the conclusion that Jason isn't a physical thing, not just that some state, right? Not just some, some psychological state of Jason's isn't physical through and through. Not that Jason has some features or properties that are irreducibly mental. No, Jason is a pure mental being. He's a purely spiritual, non-physical being. That might be tied up to half of the brain or whole brain or something like that, but that's a you know that that's that's quite a contingent affair. Mm. Okay, so let's say we're assessing these beings afterwards. I suppose we've got a couple of thoughts. The one would be, let's say it is the case that there is Jason's soul, and Jason's soul either let's say resides in the original Jason, doesn't travel with the left or the right hand side of the brain, and so therefore Jason, in some sense, ceases to exist. And we now have these two. Um, sort of things that look a bit like Jason you know, in the clones. Um, or we think that the soul travels to the left or it travels to the right, or that the soul splits and now we have two Jasons. It doesn't seem like the soul's helping resolve any of the problems that you have. Um, I mean, if we, if we imagine, let's say, instead of splitting um, Jason's brain, we just clone him um, mm -hmm. in every sense, atom for atom. And we have this other Jason that seems to have all of the desires, the memories, the physicality of the original Jason. We might very well think, well, um, we now have two Jasons. Um, and we now have, um, you know, kind of a continuity in two beings. Um, and that, that seems plausible. Um, we might think with the split brain, if it really is um, kind of an identical version of the prior thing, um, well, then we have multiple located Jasons, just like we have with the clones. Or we think that to be a Jason requires a certain level of um, being and that you don't survive in the same way that the epileptic who has that, that operation, who's not able to do certain things before, you know, is uh, a lesser version of themselves to the point at which they no longer really exist and some new being popped into existence. Not um, necessarily. I mean, if, if you were, if you were faced with the, the option of choosing to um, die, you know, um, 
um, or to have half your brain removed and, and you were assured that the subsequent subject would have the same memories and personality and maybe this was done early enough in your life so that you know you wouldn't suffer from very serious um, um, sort of uh, handicaps you know um, um, I think you choose you, you choose the latter option right and you choose it because you think you'd, you'd survive it seems possible at least that you could survive this operation Right. Yeah, you might be doing it for the hope of it. And again, I think it remains an option that what you have is um, Jason surviving in two different bodies. Um, Jason uh, surviving. So there are two centers of consciousness. Mm. Um, Which well, one? In Jason. Jason now seems to be one center of consciousness. He's like this. He has this view on the world. Now he. Ha now there's this thing that has. If if you kill one, you've just sort of amputated Jason. You haven't committed homicide. Um, yeah, I mean, you might think you're creating two different beings, um, who were kind of Let's say that the one, the one on the left shoots the one on the right. Is that, is that suicide? <laughs> um, seems like in these cases, the way you're picturing it, there are two individuals. One of them can be, can be Jason. That's, that's for sure. Possibly, but it's hard to see how both can be Jason. Um, um, Jason would be the sort of scattered, spatially scattered object. Killing, killing one would be like amputating Jason. And that's, that seems wrong. No, you're, you're, you're killing someone when you kill lefty or righty. You're not just making Jason smaller. What if, what if you think about this in Poffertian terms? Okay. So Poffert said one of the errors that we, we have when we think about these cases is, we have this myth that identity is one-to-one, -one, that at any given time in the past, there will be one person in the future that I'm identical with. Instead, maybe we need to think not so much about identity, but continuity, and continuity could be one-to-many. So I am one at this point in time, but in future, I will continue through more than one person. Well, that does, I don't think that would mean that identity is not one-to-one. Right, you're just worried about something else. Not, yes, not yes, exactly. He's just saying identity isn't yeah. the most important thing. Yeah, that, you, that might be right. Maybe identity isn't important, and maybe we can think about other things. There still is a fact about identity. There is a fact about whether you are identical to this person post-operation, lefty or righty or neither or both. Uh, some of these are hard to well, they're all hard to make sense of. They all have their problems. Um, whether you care about identity or not, well, yeah. So maybe you don't care about it. Maybe you care about something else. Maybe you don't want to continue. I mean, you know, you might be depressed or something, but, but um, there's still going to be a fact of the matter about where you go. And that, that so the argument goes, that fact isn't captured by the physical stuff. You could know all about the brain and its parts and just not know the fact where you go. So you must be something over and above your brain. So when you we pass the soul, where do you go? Show me how your soul solves this problem in some way. Yeah. So, so then the, the um, I, I'm, I'm not sure what, what you mean solves the, 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 the problem is if there is no soul, um, or rather the problem is this, you um, know 
all the physical facts, all the facts about the physical stuff without knowing where Jason is in the setup, this weird setup that we have. So conclusion, there must be something, there must be something um, to Jason. Jason must be something over and above his brain or parts of his brain and so on. Doesn't follow at all. Um, I mean, you said we, we're puzzled because we're not sure where Jason goes. And so you said, therefore there must be a soul. But yeah. if I said, okay, I grant you a soul, yeah. can you get us out of the puzzle? And you say, no, oh, I, yeah. can't. Right, I, right. I can't tell oh, you. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so here's, so, so here, here, if, if you um, know what happens to all the physical stuff and you know what happens to the soul, then indeed you do know where Jason goes. No problem. Great. Where does the soul go? <laughs> I don't have to answer that, that, that question. Right? <laughs> it, it, it might go left. It might go right. It might, it might cease existing. Right. Sounds exactly like my non-soul like, options. I, I, I doubt <laughs> if it's like an amoeba, but the knowledge problem is solved. Yeah. Okay. No, look, look, Mark, I, I think the, I understand. The problem of knowledge is solved. So, so yeah. where does it go? <laughs> That's up to God's good graces, if you will. <laughs> um, maybe God sends it left. Maybe God sends it right. Maybe it ceases to exist. You know, maybe there's some sort of uh, the 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 the. I, I'm I'm not sure what the the problem is. Yeah, it's, okay, it's so it might be a mystery about why it's going this way rather than that. You know, maybe you really need some sort of theological answer. Yeah, okay. Um, but but the the the, the original problem about it was about our not knowing where Jason goes when we know all the physical facts. And when you add the soul in, you know, now you know where Jason goes. So, so, so you're saying that the soul, the soul. Don't me again. There's this argument I'm well, presenting. Well, this argument, you... <laughs> right? This, the, this argument that you presented, this case, the split brain case, suggests that the claim is that if you know all the spiritual stuff, if you know everything about the soul involved, everything about this, if you know where the soul goes, then you know where Jason is, right? right? But you don't know where Jason is just by knowing all the physical stuff. Exactly. Right. Okay. Okay. And so the conclusion is that, well, there must be a soul. Why? Because it must, and this is the missing premise, it must in principle be knowable where Jason goes. There's a truth of the and, matter, you know, yes, right. No, but, but hold on. That's not the claim. The claim is it must in principle be knowable where Jason goes. Not that there is a truth of the matter where Jason goes, but it must be knowable. And I think that's the problem with the argument. Uh, oh, I don't know if I, I don't know if the argument would commit to that just roughly. You don't know, um, you know, all the physical stuff. You don't know where Jason goes. Um, there's a truth about where Jason's gone. So you know all the physical stuff. You don't know where Jason goes. Right? Um, you know all the, phys all the physical truths. You don't know all the truths. You know all the truths about physical particulars, individual substances. You don't know all the truths about Jason-ish individuals or substances. Uh, I don't know if I want to commit to it's being knowable or, you know, I, I don't know. Um, all you need is that. How are you so confident that Mary wouldn't know what it's like to experience redness before the, the, um, before she's been released from 
a black and white environment? I mean, I guess I'm probably drawing on my own experience where I um, have thought about something and then it has turned out to be very different once I've actually encountered or experienced that thing. Yeah, so, okay, so, um, um, great. You might be thinking about yourself, like, what if I were in this room and I had learned a lot of physics and the door were opened and I saw something bright red, I'd learned something new, gosh, that's what it's like to see a, to experience, to have the sensation of redness. But you, you've lost thought of just how brilliant Mary is. As smart as you are, um, Mary is much smarter. Mary, Mary's much smarter than Newton and Einstein. Um, Mary knows everything there is to know about the physics of color vision, right? She knows everything and everything that's bouncing around your brain. She knows the, she, she can hold in her, in, in her mind's eye, so to speak. An, an image of all the neurons and their little parts and the little stuff they're releasing and how, and this is incredible detail that we can't, how many billions of neurons are there in the brain and how many billions of interactions are there? We can't begin to picture it, but Mary can. Mary can easily picture all of this. So maybe Mary's brain is, if we, if we were to picture it properly, would, would have to be as big as your room, right? To house all this information. If you imagine a, a, a subject whose brain is as big as your room and who's so much smarter than Newton and Einstein and can in her mind's eye um, follow the thread of all the billions of neurons in your brain and stuff they're releasing. Um, if you keep this in mind, is it so, so obvious to you that this creature, this very alien creature is nothing like you or me, wouldn't know what it's like to experience redness. Are you so confident that upon being released from the room, she wouldn't just shrug and say, yes, of course, I already knew that's what red was like. Yeah, my confidence is severely reduced now. A little, maybe a little reduced. Yeah. If you think about someone who um, studies perfumes and what they're able to do because they've had the experience of the sense let's say all the composite individual things in Chanel number no. five, even if they've never smelled Chanel number no. five, they, they're so gifted at this that they could stitch it together in their minds. And they could say, even though I've never experienced Chanel number no. five, I know what it is to do that. Um, because I can, I can, um, I can add up all my prior experiences, all my prior knowledge, and then get it together. And, and when they do experience, they go, that's exactly what I expected it to be like. And maybe Mary's like that, right? Um, that um, all of the other actual knowledge really could be stitched together into a sense of that that is what it is to experience red and that there is no new knowledge in the, in the matter. Um, the, the, I think the basic idea is that we're so puny, we're so unlike Mary, when we really think about it, a being that can know all the physical facts that are going on in the human brain when it's experiencing color. We might, we, we, we might be a little... Um, more reserved about coming to a verdict about what Mary would know um, in advance of an experience. People, you know, that are very different from us and have had different experiences from us and so on can do things that are quite wondrous. Um, Mary's very different from any person that's ever lived. 
maybe we shouldn't be so confident about what you would know. David Lewis um, has this kind of worry about the Mary argument where he grants the premise. Yes, um, Mary could know all the physical facts and the premise, uh, Mary doesn't know everything there is to know, but denies the conclusion that there's something over and above the physical facts. How? It looks like a tight argument, right? Mary knows all the physical facts. She doesn't know all the facts, so there must be something over and above the physical facts, right? Um, well, there might be a kind of equivocation um, involved in that argument. Maybe her knowledge of the physical facts is propositional knowledge. It's like information. She, she knows um, all about, you know, she knows that this atom is here, that that atom is there, that this atom is square, that this atom is round. I would have rhymed if I just put it in a slightly different order. And maybe she doesn't know what it's like to experience something, you know, some, something to have this reddish experience or to experience pain or what have you. But that might not be a kind of gap in her propositional knowledge or her knowledge of that. Okay, so she has all the know that knowledge, but she doesn't have know how knowledge. She doesn't have an ability yet, an analogy. You might know everything there is to know about bikes, uh, bicycles, you know, the things you ride, but you don't know how to ride a bike. Does it follow that there's some facts about bikes that you don't know? No, the kind of knowledge you're lacking is a know-how knowledge. It's an ability. So one criticism of the Mary argument is that it might be true that Mary knows all the physical facts and doesn't know something, but it doesn't follow that there's some facts she doesn't know. Okay. Um, that there's some feature of the thing that the physical facts didn't capture. Maybe Mary knows all the physical facts, but she doesn't have a certain ability. She doesn't have a certain know-how ability. What ability could that be? Well, after she's released, maybe she gains certain sorts of powers. Maybe once the, the, she has the first impression, the first sensation of redness okay, that she hasn't had before, she can do things that she couldn't beforehand do. Now she can... Um, um, imaginatively recreate experiences of red apples. She couldn't do that before. Now she can introspectively classify experiences on the basis of their color. She couldn't do that before. Maybe what, what's happening to Mary and what she's learning, the new knowledge she's getting, isn't about any facts, isn't any information. It's just that she acquires more know-how, more ability. Is that a way of diagnosing what's happening, what Mary's learning? Maybe if it's plausible, then we, we shouldn't feel the pull towards the conclusion that there's some non-physical fact um, that isn't captured by the physical fact. It's another objection against the Mary argument. Well, Tyron, thank you very much. I think you've done what great philosophers try to do, which is to convince us of a position we didn't originally hold and then remove it from us at the last minute. You drove us all the way to believing in there are souls and then you removed all of that. You took it all back to the point where we're not sure what we believe anymore. So thank you very much for joining us, Tyron.